When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Tuesday, June 8. Well, just ahead, the software company at the center of a massive and widespread internet outage. Plus, Wendy's is more than square burgers. It's a hot stock with a scalding Twitter account. We'll look at the business. And how chemistry and data science improving oil and gas drilling technology. We're going to talk about a green company in the fracking business drilling down on Flotech, the Flotech CEO and oil industry veteran, John Gibson. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we're hoping the drill down is becoming your daily source for business news that goes beyond the markets. So subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, or Pandora. Follow us every day. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly on our website, bizpod.net. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Joining me, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, tell me the three most important business stories right now. Corey, number one, a groundbreaking report from ProPublica found the 25 wealthiest Americans paid little to nothing in federal income taxes between 2014 and 2018. And we're talking about Names like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, benefiting from various elements in the tax code. The Watchdog website based its analysis on documents from the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, and the IRS is now investigating the report and how this tax and income detail, how these details were obtained. So they're investigating the leak, not the problem yeah. behind it. I mean, Jesse Eisinger, uh, uh, terrific reporter, Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, has done some great work in the past on the IRS, kind of explaining how the enforcement actions of the IRS have been pulled way back in terms of how much money they're spending compared to how much money they're probably letting slip by in unpaid taxes. But these are legal tax avoidance schemes uh, from the very richest people in the world. Uh, it's kind of an amazing report and really a must read. A real feel-good story for all of us <laughs> who aren't those 25 25- Richest Americans. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. You know, it, it's it's a really interesting way to look at you know the notion we have that the people who can pay the most should pay the most, and that's yeah. not what's happening. Um, and and you can see it from these these and of uh, course story. Ironically, you know, people like Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, our former boss Michael Bloomberg, they are out there saying we should be paying more taxes. That's what they say in public. Number two. Job openings reaching a record level this spring. This is according to government and private sector data. U.S. employers added 9.3 million jobs available at the end of April. Uh, That's according to the Labor Department. This is the most in two decades that records have been kept. 
and more than 2 million more than before the pandemic. Leisure and hospitality sectors posting the most growth in openings. Now, some economists are pointing out that this is yet another sign of the difficulty the labor market is having finding enough workers to meet demand. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting time in the job market. It's a really interesting time, I'm sure, to be an economist right now because we're seeing um, these, these push and pulls happening in the market, which is you know, this big question, are unemployment benefits and added unemployment benefits actually keeping people from going back to work? We hear that from CEOs sometimes. We don't often hear that from the workers, but uh, t- I think today's report just shows that the economy is on fire and um, uh, it's going to drive pay up. I got to say this. I've said this before on this show. Like any of those politicians or economists that are saying that unemployment benefits keep people from working or finding work, it's just not true. Anyone that's been on unemployment, they can't survive on that. And that's no way to get forward. And that's actually most in most cities you can't pay your mortgage, you can't pay your rent, you can't pay your, your gas bill. So it's just people want jobs. Now, finally, the third most important business story of the day, but not my last one, Corey. The state of Ohio says Google should be treated as a utility. This case adds to the legal woes confronting Google. Now, Google is also facing antitrust lawsuits from the Justice Department and a separate consortium of states led by Colorado and Texas fight against big tech is getting real. Um, I think I still think Europe is is maybe the biggest threat to big changes in big tech. Um, we see them going after Google. We see them going after Facebook. The U.S. has really been kind of slow uh, in those efforts. Now, I have one more story for you, Corey. Now, I know you hate this. You hate it when I have a fourth story. When but you I can't have... count to three in our business podcast? <laughs> We've discussed this a few weeks ago on our May 25th episode, to be exact. And today, just a few hours ago from reading this, uh, electric truck startup Lords Town Motors amended its annual filing to say it doesn't have the sufficient cash to start commercial production. Matters so, a lot. There you okay, go. We'll call that a, it's a follow-up on an earlier uh, story that we did, which we predicted yeah. that exact problem might happen. On May 25th, we did that. So now everyone's finding out for themselves. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, let's take a look at the breaking news coming out of Fastly. Fastly, F-S-L-Y, shares ended up closing higher by 10% today, and they've gained 18% in a year. What is this What is this news about Fastly today? Well, big news that kind of underscores the importance of this company. The stock initially looked like it was going to be in trouble today. In fact, indeed, futures across all the markets were down before the open today because of a Fastly product tanking. Uh, the problem was a Fastly software led to an outage across the internet, right across the web at least, uh, were websites from, you name it, uh, news sites, The Guardian, CNN, New York Times, uh, The Financial Times, toss in Reddit, some Amazon pages, Twitch, the British government's homepage. They all went down owing to some kind of problem with Fastly's software. And everywhere you looked across the web, there was 503 errors, the screens that pop up saying 503 website can't be found. And you couldn't read about the problem itself because those sites were down. It shows you just how much the internet relies on this, I would call it a largely unheard of cloud services company. Now, how does Fastly Software work? The company builds what they call an edge cloud platform. Let me use a, a metaphor. This is this is prom season, of course. You know that, Isaac? No? Uh, sure. Your kids are little. <laughs> um, well, proms are back a little bit. And I heard a story about a prom in one of the uh, the, the swanky towns, uh, suburbs of San Francisco. They tell the kids when the prom is, but they don't tell the kids where the prom is until the day of the event. 
Why? What, what, what's the point of that? Because the kids will sneak their booze at oh. the events and hide it. They'll bury it. They'll Smart. hide it in the walls. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, oh, I like so that. I wish okay. I would have thought of that when I was in high school. Um, they also, of course, have the breathalyzers. I think the whole thing's stupid. The kids are probably stoned, not drinking. But in any case, yeah. um, uh, this is essentially how Fastly Software works. It takes the goodies of any website and disperses them to the locations of where someone might actually be consuming them. They create these things on the edge of the cloud, and they cache the 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 videos or the images or, yes, the podcasts that are quite popular so that when the user wants to download it, the biggest chunks of, of content are around there and around the edges. That's how Fastly Software works or is supposed to work. So today, you know, it, the world gets to see what it's like when you can't pull those things off the edges. For whatever reason, Fastly's uh, uh, services were down. Um, it sort of raised that issue in the minds of Fastly customers, current future customers, and uh, uh, the efficacy of Fastly products. I would say it's pretty clear have some issues. Um, there was a prescient soundbite uh, just recently when CEO Josh Bixby three weeks ago was speaking at the Needham conference suggesting what could happen. Indeed, he was asked these questions during their IPO process and ever since. And during the IPO, I was, I was asked questions and, and still am by media, like um, if, if Fastly goes down, uh, will we hear about it? And the answer is you'll hear about it when Fastly's back up because the media that you consume, the websites that tell you this information comes down with us. So we are so central functioning of the internet Central to the functioning of the internet, or today, the non-functioning of the internet. Wow. We'll see what the reason is for this. They haven't really said, um, but it, it, we don't know if it's a cybersecurity concern or not. But it's it's it'll be. Um, I think it's going to be really important to Fastly customers going forward. Yeah, all of us actually, right? Yeah. I love that prom metaphor. Wow. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix, SFIX shares rose 14% today, and they've gained 165% over the past 12 months. What is up with Stitch Fix? Well, it's a retailer, an important retailer, I think, because of the way they use technology. It's very different than kind of traditional retailers. I think we talked, was it last week, about City Trends, uh, a retailer that we're obsessed yeah. with? Um, obsessed. I wish the CEO would call me back. Oh, they'll call you back. They'll call you back or we won't feature them. It's yeah, exactly. their choice, I guess. Come on, um, City. In any case, City Trends, interesting retailer, but really traditional, right? Buy a bunch right, of clothes, right. put them in some stores, hope you sell out. Yeah. Well, a lot of clothing retailers have seen people business picking up as people are getting out again post-pandemic. They want to look good. Mm -hmm. They're buying new wardrobes and importantly, putting those stimulus checks to work. And that's been very beneficial for companies everywhere from, uh, you know, uh, anthropology and urban uh, urban outfitters all the way to, to city trends. But the Stitch Fix sale is different. Uh, it's different than the typical retail sale. They use all kind of data mining to figure out what their customer wants through essentially an online survey. They send a bunch of clothes out to that customer using stylus to kind of figure out what their preferences are. They use the data to figure out what their preferences are. They let the, the uh, customer return the clothes that they don't want and seeing what they keep, what they get rid of. Stitch, Stitch Fix reported a really big quarter uh, when they just announced their quarter, which ended on May 1st. Net revenues were $536 million, up 44% year over year. An active clients of 4.1 million 
That's an increase of 689,000, a 20% year-over-year increase. So people are going out. People are getting ready to go out. They're getting dressed to go out. They're getting dressed to go back to work. Maybe they've got some COVID bellies to deal with and a and a new uh, a new measurement regime. Speak for I yourself. I, I may be speaking for myself. Regardless, <laughs> these guys are, are are really seeing a pickup. Um, net revenue for, per client of four hundred eighty one dollars. Think of that. That's a lot of money for each yeah. customer. Um, that's down a little bit, three percent year over year. Uh, but it's up three percent quarter over quarter. I think that that actually matters on a quarterly basis, not a year-over-year basis, because you really can see the momentum that they're having coming out of COVID. Um, and they lost about half as much money. They lost $19 million in a quarter, half as much as the previous year. And I guess one of the interesting questions here is how much of this is just uh, return to work, return to life, and how much of it is stimulus checks? Here's a chief financial officer, Dan Jetta. You know, we looked at the stimulus and to see if we could see anything in there, and there was nothing that we came to any conclusive uh, analysis that uh, had where stimulus played an impact on us. Um, as, as, as we mentioned previously, the sequential ads for this quarter was a combination of new to stitch fix, uh, like, you know, uh, customers that have lapsed that have re-engaged, which makes a lot of sense since we know those customers and they're ready to buy again. And as you mentioned, as well as the, uh, the lower gross ads a year ago, uh, during the COVID trial. Um, going forward, uh, you know, uh, as we go into Q4, uh, there is the summer season that we see ahead of us, uh, and so we will um, we'll continue to watch uh, our, our ads closely. Uh, but the tailwinds we see, uh, we're, we're happy with. So people are getting dressed, ready to go out again. Stitch Fix, just so I'm clear, I have I have friends that use Stitch Fix, I believe, but you can't go into a Stitch Fix store. There's no actual brick and mortar, right? Or Their business is sending you stuff and seeing what right. you keep. They talk a lot in this company about the keep rates how many items their, their customers keep from what they send. Uh-huh. And they, they, they made a real big point when they went public uh, about their use of technology. They, they, they worked really hard to rebrand themselves, not as a uh, retailer, but as a technology company mm-hmm. that sells clothes, kind of like you know Tesla's been successful in rebranding itself now or branding itself as a technology company that sells cars, mm-hmm. not a car maker that uses technology. Um, that's worked for Stitch Fix as well. When you listen to the analysts on the call, it's interesting because it usually tends to be technology analysts, not retail analysts. Corey, what's your next drill down? You hungry? Yeah, always. Um, let's look at Wendy's. 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 A W-E-N shares rose 25% today and they've gained 27% in a year. What's What's going on with Wendy's? Well, this is a meme stock, or I don't like the phrase meme stock, by the way. I don't either, but it, well, okay, so what let's go with a different one I've heard. Okay. Let's call them game stocks. Well, that makes sense. Because these investors treat it like a game. These, these Wall Street bets guys, like, it's going to go up because it's going to go up. I'm all in. But isn't that what Wall Street is? One big game? I'd like to think one big casino? I'd like to think there's more to it. There's certainly more to Wendy's that being jaded? than being a game stock. I didn't realize that the, Wendy's was a meme stock. It is now. Okay. Uh, and it's been on fire a, as a result. This is a Wall Street bets thing? It is. And also, you know, as it happens last week, and I, I, I spent, I didn't spend, I lost 20 minutes of my life that I will never get back going into the Twitter account of Wendy's. Are you, are you, do you understand this? Twitter? Have you looked at this Twitter account before? I follow them. You do? Yeah. Yeah. They, they have a thing, great Twitter. They, have they a, throw they have, off more shade than a palm tree. This, oh, these yeah. These guys are crazy. Yeah. 
And they're Let quick. Let me give you some examples. They're quick. Their tweets are quick to respond to whatever's going on in the zeitgeist. When it's somebody great. tweets out, I want Wendy's, but my girlfriend wants McDonald's. What do I do? Wendy's quickly responds to this person online. There are plenty of fish in the sea. <laughs> but similarly, my friend wants to go to McDonald's. What should I tell him? Uh, Hexic asks on Twitter. Wendy's, find new friends. <laughs> They're good. I mean, listen, I have to say, right, I am not a fast Anthony, food person, but these tweets do make me want to go to a Wendy's. I probably won't ever, but I but I do like them, and they make me consider Wendy's. They do. I've got more. Anthony Marinini puts on, on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, to Wendy's. McDonald's is better. Wendy's responds, at freezing beef. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, my God. Shay, the library is open. Ace the Prophet. Yo, Wendy's. Y'all can use my mixtape if you're fr- for your flame grill. You want to flame grill your burgers? Just saying, Wendy's. I love it. We'd prefer to keep our food fresh and hot. <laughs> Listen, it's whoever awesome. they have running that social account, let's give them a raise. Fantastic, but uh, couldn't agree. Give 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 these people a raise in that social media account because um, they're doing a great job. But you know, the stock is also on fire uh, because the business, their post COVID numbers have been really strong. I spent a bunch of time, you know, going through the, the quarterly report and the most recent results from the company. And the chicken business is doing really well. The chicken sandwich is doing quite well. Um, interestingly, COVID actually pushed these guys. So most of the, about 5 or 6% of the stores they own, the rest are franchises. The franchises pay them about 4% for net sales and another essentially 4% for advertising. Um, but they're spending a lot of money on technology. And during COVID, they really accelerated their technology spend and their developments to allow them to, to allow their customers to order online, have the order waiting for them. That makes the delivery, the drive-through business work a lot faster. And um, they're seeing really big increases over the last year and over the last last year, which the rest of us would call 2019, and a, a, a really aggressive ramp in same-store sales. You know, same-store sales for existing food businesses you normally look for those that are really good if they're better than, you know, 4 or 5%. These guys did 13.5% increase in same-store sales over 2019. So That's very great. strong growth from this company. Um, here is the CEO, Todd Penninger. As you think about people going into mobile ordering, um, we're seeing folks uh, with higher average checks, 15 to 20%. It's a strong economic equation to get folks into mobile ordering. We're creating more uh, better experiences in our restaurant. When you think about mobile grab and go, you think about curbside, those all help with speed and getting folks through the line much more convenient uh, along the way. And then delivery, as we continue to drive that side of the business, we're seeing average checks of up 40 to 50%. So a lot as we work to turn our parking lots into frictionless transaction centers to continue to drive throughput, but more importantly, to continue to drive nice average checks and nice flow through for our business creating better customer experiences and creating better employee experiences, quite honestly, in those restaurants. So uh, a lot to like um, and a lot more we can continue to do to uh, to make that experience even more frictionless in our restaurants uh, for both the consumer and the uh, and our employee. So I think it's interesting, right? The mobile order shopper spends more than the non-mobile order shopper. That's a bit that's just a big deal for them, right? That, I mean, that's the whole yeah. game. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but my habits when I'm ordering a mobile a food, a mobile food order, I always add more than I need. It's just, it's so easy. 
Certainly is at Wendy's. All right, well, coming up next, John Gibson, the CEO of Flowtech, talks to us about how his company is helping an ESG play in oil and gas. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the drill down. Joining us right now, John Gibson, the CEO of Flowtech Industries. It's a fascinating company uh, based in Houston. He joins us right now from Houston. Uh, John, good to see you on my screen here and hear your voice. Pleasure to be here. So Flowtech is not the business that it used to be, uh, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing <laughs> is it's a smaller business than it used to be. Uh, you guys are doing your trailing revenues have been uh, really punished lately, um, down to $45 million uh, for, um, uh, but is uh, such an interesting company. What does Flowtech do and what did Flowtech used to do? Okay. So two questions. I'll see if I can be brief. Uh, one is I would have called the revenues abysmal. Uh, and probably the reason I got hired early on was it's a turnaround situation. Um, in the past, it really focused on using terpenes, primarily a product called complex nanofluids to improve production in wells. So a well that would make 100 barrels, your treatment oil wells. would have- Oil, oil and gas wells. wells. Exactly, oil and gas wells. A well that might make 100 barrels, we might could improve as much as 20%, so you'd make 120 uh, barrels a day. And so you'd look at the price of the treatment and the payout and, and take a look at how to do that. How that works is we coat the grains in the reservoir so that it preferentially flows the, the particular fluid that we, we want. We can make it flow more water, we can make it flow more oil, make it more, flow more gas. And so that was that was the business. Well, and the turndown, um, more oil wasn't necessary when the price is that low. What they really want is cheap. And and treating wells with surfactants was not that, that popular an item. But is it the real lever on this that's been great for us as we come into 2021 is all of those treatments use citrus terpene or pine terpene, a delaminate, so they're or they are biodegradable treatments. And so yeah, I'm, I'm no expert, but uh, chemicals coming from uh, oranges and trees are not the do not cause the environmental degradation uh, that chemicals coming from chemicals uh, tend to cause. And that's really the emergence is can we do biodegradable chemistry in order to improve the industry and reduce the contamination of aquifers or uh, the any kind of skin contact with employees that are pumping the equipment or inhalation. So it's exciting to say, wow, we had a great chemical for helping wells improve, but its real value today is in the environmental side, the ESG sustainability and saying, let's switch it to something that doesn't do environmental damage and, and gives you no liability. And people where I am, out in, in California, even worse in San Francisco, I love San Francisco, don't get me wrong, but San Francisco looks at the world in some ways differently than, uh, than Houston does. Uh, for our listeners who can't tell, John is, is not from San Francisco. Well, I'm not I, either. 
I'm, I'm probably originally <laughs> from New York, but I so admired Southerners. I hired a language coach, and I'm glad that I'm, I'm somehow deceiving <laughs> you with this accent. It's working. <laughs> I can't wait to you. And how, do, how does one pronounce the word O? spelled O-I-L? Uh, oil. It's a three-syllable no, word. Depending, you will call it ull. You call it ull. I know how this is how they do it in Houston. So, uh, in in, oil, in the the oil and gas business, in particular, uh, the world of fracking is not known for its uh, its ESG concerns, which I think is unfair. Actually, I think that a lot of oil drillers were very concerned, uh, more concerned than most, I think, with the environment and and the world around them. But you are really bringing um, an environmental treatment to fracking, in particular, and oil and gas. Completions also. So you're correct, though, but I've been in this a long time. So at one time I was president of Halliburton, and we've improved as an industry uh, as as we've moved forward because we really weren't that focused on what chemicals we were pumping. We were more focused on the outcome. Now everyone is really focusing on the environmental impacts that the industry has, whether it be the release of greenhouse gases or uh, the, the burning of diesel to deliver products to the rig site and how we can eliminate CO2, right. methane, and, and we're much better, but we still have a way to go. And that's where Flotex sees a tremendous opportunity is helping people continue to improve. And while oil's not perhaps the long-term answer to energy, for the next 30, 40 years, we need it and we need it to be greener. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting too that, you know, while you're making this big turn, in this business, you get hit by COVID. And I thought it was interesting what you had to say on the most recent conference call, talking about just the inability to get out and tell your story to new accounts because you couldn't travel and because you couldn't meet with people um, really slowed down this turnaround of Flotech. Well, it's I, I met with the C-suite executives from one of the large independents about two months ago. It was the first meeting they had had in person in 13 months. And so doing everything by Zoom, it's pretty easy if you've got a long-term relationship. And so we're, we're using up the human equity that we've built in personal relationships with the people that we know. But when you're trying to build that rapport with someone you don't know, and so I'll say new customers, new markets, that that's what is, is much more difficult because you have to let them grow to trust you. You've got to meet sufficient number of times to understand their needs. And I find Zoom, uh, I wouldn't want to have have met my wife this way. I'm sure she's a lovely looking person. I don't know why. But uh, you think in real person, you do better is what you're trying to say. 42 years of marriage. And I mean, you spend a lot of time building trust and, you know, building confidence in one another. And so I think it, it, relationships apply whether they're personal or business it, it's all about trust it's all about uh, confidence and uh, belief in one another and that we can well, deliver so speaking of losing trust your the prior management of your company I, I i'll say bad things about it so you don't have to seems like they really screwed up by um uh, deciding to sort of take out a lot of their customers and go directly the, they take a lot of the middlemen and go directly to the end customer Ending it, which meant that they just pissed off a lot of the middlemen who were otherwise have been selling Flotex products. Probably the single biggest issue, Corey. Uh, you can't just do a channel transformation without thoughtfulness and planning. And to simply go in and blow up your channel partner, which was doing a fantastic job for the company, and switch to a direct model instead of using the indirect model uh, without planning was very poor strategy and, and didn't show real integrity in the relationship. And I think that's probably where the majority of the damage came on Flotex revenues if you look at 18, 19. 
So how is the uh, the comeback working? How is your ability now to go back to your old old uh, uh, partners, the company's old partners, and say, hey, the whole breakup thing, I didn't mean, mean it. Let's get back together. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, that's a great question too. The the problem with it is you too, even though I've got good relationships with them, it takes time to rebuild that trust. I mean, you you need to do projects together. You start small. You start on something where they have an urgent critical need, or you can improve uh, something for one of their customers, and you work from there. And I think the great part is that I've got good relationships, and we're rebuilding that, and they do trust us, and and we'll continue to improve that over the next year. You guys also found that with the excess uh, manufacturing capacity that wasn't being used because of the turndown in the oil field uh, writ large, uh, that you could do other things like make sanitizing and cleaning products, which seems like it ought to be a real good business uh, during a pandemic. Well, I, I think it'll be a really good business long term. Uh, it, it was one of those where, believe it or not, I was coming back from Canada, called the guys here, and I just went you know, can we do anything to help out first responders with sanitizer since there was a, a very little available? And I didn't realize what volume meant to these guys. So I landed, they told me we had 12,000 gallons made. And so first place we call was the homeless uh, shelter here in Houston and uh, the Star Hope Mission, great organization. And we delivered them a uh, thousand gallons. And then the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, I've known for a while. And we asked him what he needed for first responders. And we sent 1,240 gallons to them. And, and it just kept going. So we expanded it to Midland, all the first responders in Oklahoma. Uh, we, we tried to provide product to. And, and from that, the telephone started ringing. And we thought, wow, we can do this. Uh, we've got the capacity. We can do about, you know, somewhere between two and a half and three million gallons a month of product, whether it be for the consumer market or for the oil and gas market. And that's with a single shift of people, we could probably get to the six to seven million a month by adding a second or third shift. And so we've got plenty of capacity and we went into that market uh, because it's about, our estimate's about a $3 billion a year uh, market with a Kager that's gonna be in the high single digits even post COVID. And and so you go if in that market, there's not a lot of excess capacity. So if we really just address the incremental uh, TAM or available market that from the growth side, we think we've got a good opportunity. And there's a good opportunity on the people that that didn't get their allocations. Right. So if you had a yeah, if they cut you on the allocation, you go, I can fill that gap and you can trust me. And what's what are the margins like in that business? Is that a very profitable business? It seems like the the product is not very differentiated, so the product margins might not be real good once once the sort of the the, the rush to buy stuff that we saw a year ago is over. Yeah, I, I once had a marketing professor tell me that if if they can differentiate toilet paper and have the margin on it vary so greatly, you better be able to differentiate things, <laughs> other products. And so, on the sanitizer side, one of the big differentiators is. Uh, immediate delivery and inventory because a lot of people have been burned. And so they want proof of inventory, proof of shipment, proof of quality because they've taken on products like, I won't name any, but I'll say that have benzene or other contaminants in them that have come out of other countries. We actually have the ability for you to monitor our manufacture of those products in real time. We've put a sensor in that we sell into the market and we can tell you what the quality is, what the contaminants are, what the speed of the production is, 
is you can see it being bottled via video so that we can give you the confidence that what you're ordering is the quality you want, that it'll be shipped on time in the quantities that you want. You can you can visually see all of that, uh, both the analytics as well as the, the physical operations. For the people that have been burned, this is a really important sales metric, and it's why the margins are staying pretty good. And what's the growth like in that business? And you mentioned single digits, but that's for the, the total market. Uh, yeah. Presumably for you, have you have you seen an acceleration in those sales? Because it, it didn't materialize last year like I thought it would. Well, I, I would say that we didn't do a great job there, Corey. We, what we really did was we knew we could make it. We made it. We worked through some contacts we had. And so, you know, we, we sold millions of dollars worth of it, but we did not have a dedicated sales force that understood the uh, distributor network for those products. And so we were excited to bring on Matt Sullivan, who was at Georgia Pacific, and he's here now, and and that's his expertise. He really brings us the sales acumen, knowledge of the market and the buyers, and how to position those products. I, I've had conversations with the CEO of several large uh, franchised food companies, and how they think about buying is far more complicated than just product purchasing. They want to know what methodology to use in cleaning their restaurant, how long they have to do that, uh, how frequently. Uh, it's you know, it's a very uh, scientific method. It's not just wiping something off. It's how long do you leave the chemical in place, which chemical combinations do you use. So, and, and we had to learn that. And so I would say we had a bit of a learning process, but we've got the right person here to, to take us through this year. I mean, our hope would be to get to double-digit uh, market share of the growth part. So imagine it's three billion. If you said it was going to grow two hundred and forty, you know, I'd like to try to get to ten percent of the two forty, and it, that would be our first milestone. And then the the part I won't come in on is how quickly. Well, come Cause, on. I mean, because you know, <laughs> that'd be a 50% increase in revenues, basically, for your company right now. It, it would. And, and I think what would be cool is Matt Sullivan, uh, who's doing that, is after he's been here long enough and can tell us, you know, who who we can connect to, how we should do that. And he's got a forecast in place. I'll be a little more definitive on the speed at which we get that done. So we think it's probably a couple of years out. I want to talk about the, at least that's what it sounds like to me. You can tell me I'm wrong. Uh, you didn't. So, um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> so I'm, what that. if I don't comment? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you've got another business that's super interesting called Data Analytics. And um, I think this is really interesting. You got into this business through an acquisition in the last year. You quickly wrote down a, a chunk of that, if I'm not right. I didn't really understand what happened there. Tell, tell me what that business is, and we can talk about the accounting of what happened with that business. I'll do both. Uh, it, JP3 measures the composition of fluids while flowing. So every 15 seconds, you can see the chemistry of the product that passed by without having to take a physical sample or release anything into the atmosphere. Or in a pipeline. In, in a pipeline, right? And, so, and it also works in refineries. It works at wellheads. And so we, if you're at a wellhead, we can tell you the composition of a barrel. So imagine the moment you flow it out of the well, you could say there's this much diesel, there's this much gasoline, there's this much jet fuel in the barrel that just flowed by. So if you're a refiner, you know exactly the quality of the product because you're seeing all of the the, the components in, in that particular barrel. So you see the molecules every 15 seconds. So I think it trans that I think it's transformational for the industry because a refinery really needs consistency and feedstock to optimize their And how do they do that? How do they do that now at a refinery? Are they taking chemical samples and shaking it up in test tubes to see what they got? A lot of different methods, but a lot of them, it's it's sort of 
an individual's knowledge of production coming from different areas. It's not really done in a in a completely automated way. I think the future is all almost all automation where you can take out the guesswork and and you can complete that without labor being involved. You can do it faster and more accurately. And so I mean, we're pretty excited about it. Now, what did so, I do wrong? Right? Ah, oh, it's a good question. Well, tell me. Oh, that's my question um, for you. Well, one could question my intellectual capacity based on doing an acquisition in the middle of COVID, but uh, it was really excited about the digital transformation of chemistry. We saw nothing like it. There's not another sensor in the marketplace that provides similar results in the same speed and the accuracy. They had a library of about 30,000 samples where they had confirmed their estimates by actually doing physical samples and then using that library like the FBI would use a fingerprint library so that when we see a, a signature go by, we're able to correlate that back to the fingerprint library and tell you what the chemical the the, huh. the chemistry is. So what did I do wrong? I, I purchased it at a terrible time in the market and it went down. And so you couldn't look at a forward forecast and think we could make it during COVID. So that that's when an auditor would come in and say you have to reevaluate the price. And so we had to write it down. It, it was a uh, frustrating because it was I, I was too optimistic about how the government would react to COVID and the speed at which we would recover from it uh, made a mistake. Uh, it was far more impactful than I thought. At the same time, I could never make that acquisition today, Corey, because I couldn't afford it. Uh, as the technology market and the SPAC market picked up, the, the value that that would have brought would have been beyond what we could have done. I forget what you guys paid for that that, that business. Well, about Right at $40 million, all in, count yeah, so equity and cash. You pay $40 million for it. It did $3 million in revenues last year, call it. Um, uh, that's post-acquisition. Post-acquisition. Post okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. So yeah. uh, and what, what month would did the acquisition take place? Uh, end of May. Okay. So from, yeah, May 18 now, I see it in your mm -hmm. 10K, which is sitting in front of me. Uh, so you close the deal May 18, you get almost $3 million in revenue. If that was a steady state, you got to figure you'd get, you know, maybe five and a half, six million in revenue from that this year. Uh, but obviously, you, you're hoping that that's going to pick up. Is that the kind of sales process where you've got to go kind of refinery to refinery, or do you roll up into a into a Schlumberger, Baker Hughes, Halliburton, and say, "Hey, we got this thing. Sell it for us." That is an insightful question. But uh, it, so I'll see if I can highlight this. If and I want to use a, an analogy. If you remember when SAP was rolled out, SAP was a software platform for ERP, but the real rollout was occurred by the big uh, consulting companies, the Deloitte, right. KPMG, and others. This really is a sensor that enables brand new uh, transformational workflows. And so I think the, the partners we need are workflow partners that can look at the, the value of oil and gas at the wellhead all the way to the to the terminal that can look at what the value is at the refinery. And so we're working now to establish partnerships with people that can do those workflows and we'll provide the, the sensor, the engine for it, but the real big revenue is gonna come and putting together workflows at the top so that you're doing production optimization or the minimization in, in water production. And so those type of workflows are beyond the sensor, but I think those companies will drive our sales. Well, I think this Flowtech story is such an interesting one. I wish you a lot of success with this turnaround. It's been a, a, a fascinating story to watch from the sidelines, um, uh, which I've been paying attention to. But it's, it does seem like there's a, a tremendous opportunity there for you as oil starts to flow, as prices are coming up, and presumably the companies on the other end. Uh, you're probably seeing them start to spend, are you? We, we are. It's... Uh 
A lot of transactions occurring, though, Corey. So uh, the consolidation in the industry is a big part of what's going on now. I think it'll continue. So there, there are some bumps in the road when you have consolidation. They normally delay and, and decide whether to release or retain different vendors. And so the, the industry changes. Um, I think that goes on for another six months. But in the end, the activity levels are going to continue to climb. The, the other real beautiful thing for us is, is a change to ESG. We're not just looking at unconventional or horizontal wells. Our technology is becoming apropos to vertical drilling as well, which means we can help on geothermal wells as well as water wells as we go forward. Uh, it's just fascinating. I should ask one last question about uh, more of an accounting question, but in addition to the $34 million in cash that you guys have uh, in the bank at the end of the last quarter, you do have a big net operating loss. What What is the size of that uh, as, as it relates to the, sort of the total company? It helps you kind of figure the value of the company. Uh, so Maso Manos, it's about $100 million. And a portion of it is is 100% at at uh, 30 years, and a portion of it is the new rule, so you get 80%. And so uh, I think it's, it's a really high-quality NOL that as we grow the company, we'll take advantage of. And obviously, if somebody were looking at us, that would be a huge advantage to them. Uh, well, what a fascinating company. Uh, Flowtech, John Gibson, CEO. John, thanks for your time. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Okay, well, up next on the drill down, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Flowtech touches a lot of gallons of product, petroleum product. How many gallons? We're going to tell you how many gallons the company actually uh, ran uh, through their systems uh, in the last uh, year without any spills that were recorded through 2019 to 2020. It was millions. We'll tell you how many millions right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Pandora. Oh man, we're everywhere. You gotta listen. You gotta listen every day. Hit that subscribe button and follow us to catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly on our website, bizpod.net. Okay, Flowtech bringing ESG and concerns about the environment to the oil and gas industry in a big way. In 2019-2020, their safety programs and protocols, uh, they say, did not record any spills and they did 15,189,587 gallons of product, Isaac. There is your drill down bite. Uh, 15,189,587 gallons without a spill from Flowtech. Hey, that's a successful drill down. Got it? Get Indeed. It? Dr- drilling down. Oil. I, I, I oil well. Drilling. Drilling I an oil it. well. <laughs> All right. It's part of that. Thank you for listening to the drill down. <laughs> I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster, we appreciate you. He's our executive producer. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.